Hello and welcome to Making and Doing with me, Graeme Newman. In this series of programmes, I want to find out more about how the synergy of creativity, science and technology can foster innovation, as design evolves from making things to making things possible. Today we're in Hong Kong talking to Doug Woodring, founder and managing director at Ocean Recovery Alliance the NGO focusing on entrepreneuring programs to reduce plastic pollution, both on land and water. Ocean Recovery Alliance's vision is to educate, build awareness and provide solutions exploring how we can fix the plastic ecosystem in terms of the production, consumption and disposal of plastic to inspire positive societal change at the community, national and international levels. To frame the conversation, let's unpack Thailand as the preferred dumping ground for plastic waste from rich countries such as Japan, the United States and Australia. And this peaked out at an astonishing half a million tonnes imported in 2018. In February this year, Thailand's cabinet announced banning plastic waste imports by 2025, similar to that of China five years ago. And this intent is to control pollution and address the impacts on people's health. Prime Minister Prayut Chanucha claiming on a Facebook post that the import ban will prevent Thailand from being perceived as the garbage bin of the world. Aside from the obvious brinkmanship, Woodring is critical of this announcement, claiming that it is likely to be bad news for both recycling and Thailand, as it restricts feedstock for large recycling facilities, which bring investment, innovation, skills, need know-how, and infrastructure the country desperately needs. Recycling is not recognised as one of Thailand's Board of Investment S-curve industries. This is an oversight. Thailand has world-class plastics and packaging manufacturing and large recycling facilities, so potentially there is a closed-circuit ecosystem here. However, domestic production will not replace feedstock imports. For example, in six of the ten ASEAN member states alone, over 31 million tonnes of plastic waste was generated last year. And this figure includes the sudden increase in single-use plastics and personal protective equipment during the COVID-19 crisis, which has put additional stress on countries working to tackle plastic waste. I'd like to start by asking you about the economic impact of Thailand banning plastic waste and imports from 2025. So I assume you're bringing this up because of an article or a post you read. There was quite a bit of celebration, I would say, from the environmental world that um, another country was banning plastic imports. And contrary to that belief, uh, we believe this is actually, and it's counterintuitive, but it's um, potentially negative for uh, the country and for recycling in general. The reason for that is uh, recycling needs scale, needs large volumes of material. Uh, 
equipment can be big, but it's got to be done uh, with the right types of material and the right batches. And most countries around the world, including even the U.S., do not have enough local collection to keep all their machines running, uh, which recyclers um, would need to keep their feedstock uh, coming through the gates and then out the other end in the form of a finished product. So when you close the borders, of course your hope is that your domestic economy and domestic recovery of material is better, improved, and good, but um, in most cases proven in the last 10 or 20 years when this happens, that is not the case. Uh, there is not further investment in machinery and equipment, maybe a little bit. Uh, sometimes that's premature and they end up with a nice factory but no feedstock to go into the front door and the machine. So the entrepreneurs will not come out and invest in that country and create jobs if they can't get their hands on feedstock. And this now becomes a societal change challenge for countries and cities and municipalities, which is getting the feedstock, which is recovering plastic in a form of waste, out of the households, out of the hands of the consumers or the businesses, into an uncontaminated stream of material that can be harnessed again for second life material. Unfortunately, most of our waste systems today around the world were designed 40 and 50 years ago. They were not designed for plastic, primarily. Wood, paper, glass, metal is okay, organic. But the machinery and equipment is not meant for plastic and all the myriads of types that now exist. Uh, thin film, flexible, uh, highly durable, different melting points, different colors. And when you put that all together in black plastic bags, which is the way most of the world collects plastic, with a bunch of food waste and chicken grease and bones and uh, old drinks and you know rotten fruit, very difficult to unscramble the omelet. And so the analogy there is recycling is about as difficult as reconstituting an omelet. So if I make you an omelet, egg, cheese, milk, pepper, ham, and you say, Doug, thank you so much for that great omelet, but I can't eat it. I want you to put it back into its original format of every single piece. That's pretty much what recycling is, particularly for plastic. A bit easier for wood, paper, and glass. So if we don't have a feedstock coming in from other countries in volumes, and in the case of Thailand, I've been to some of the factories which are handling high-quality large volumes of plastic from other countries, they can then make their machines work and make pellets and create jobs and make recycled content. If that border is closed, uh, they cannot find that material easily at all within the domestic economy of Thailand. You mentioned the U.S. earlier. Is this a trend of reducing cross-border plastic recycling we're seeing not only within ASEAN members, but also the broader Asia-Pacific region? Well, the trend, um, the issue is that there's too much plastic in the world and there's way too little infrastructure and recycling capacity for 8 billion people closely all consuming things. Um, if you look at the graph of the con plastic consumption over the last 60 years, 
you look at the graph of investment in recycling and infrastructure, it's almost flatlined. So the giant space in between consumption and machinery and equipment is enormous. And there's waste has never been sexy. There's not a lot of Elon Musk's running around trying to create these new machines. And contrary to belief, you don't need big, giant machines. Every uh, lot of Western country companies run around to cities in other countries and say, you need to buy my big recycling facility. That might be okay for a city like Hong Kong or New York or London, but it's not what you need for um, a municipality in Lombok or Kenya or Brazil. And therefore, we have a mismatch in machinery and equipment sizes and capacities and needs in communities where waste exists everywhere. Waste is distributed. You've got to do something with waste in that country. So... China banned plastic imports in 2018. That sent the exact shockwave through the world that the world needed. It's the best thing that could have happened on this topic. Uh, Why so? Because it uh, closed all the borders and mean, meant that every country had to handle its own waste in its own way. Put it right at their front door. Before, now we have to remember, people say a country is exporting waste to another country. It's not a country who exports waste, it's a person or a business. A business will not export waste if there's not a buyer on the other side. So it's people and companies who are trading material to be recycled because they think they can make a margin in this. The problem was that um, five years ago plus, there was very little oversight in the quality control of the material going into different countries. And a country like China didn't also have the enforcement capacity to check all the entrepreneurs who were buying material, buying the container loads of plastic from the West, and then hand sorting it in their backyards, almost literally. And when that happened, they might pick out 20 or 30 percent of good objects, and the other 70 percent gets burned or dumped or makes pollution. And that's what caused the whole feeling that we should not import plastic as a feedstock into the country. What that did, however, is it took the rug out from under their big recyclers in China because they need volume to keep the machines running. you got to remember that Walmart and Unilever and all our brands make all the products in China, or many, and if they want recycled content in their products, they need to get recycled content into the factories who make them. So you either make that in China or you import it. Um, now, what China was hoping was that their domestic recycling industry would become very strong because uh, in lieu of the imported feedstock from other countries, and that hasn't really happened yet. Of course, COVID got in the way of this period in the last three years, so collection was zero. People couldn't go out and collect. They were locked down. But at the same time, the infrastructure is still not there. Uh, for for the country the size of China, but neither is it in the U.S. And neither is it actually even in Japan. Japan um, collects and sorts things amazingly, but they actually process most of it in another country. So the challenge to all of us becomes one of labor costs. And the reason that the Western developed countries are not recycling as much at home is simply because of labor costs.
Right, right. On that note, we seem to be producing record-breaking amounts of single-use plastic waste, and it has to go somewhere other than the likelihood of being dumped in landfills or worse. So this is a no-brainer, but what's gone wrong? Well, so I didn't quite finish my answer to the trade question. So China uh, stopped the trade. This got all the countries looking at it more closely, which is good. The COVID helped... Unfortunately, the price of recycled plastic dropped dramatically because no one was buying it. Factories weren't open. People didn't demand it. And people were also not collecting it because they were locked down. So a lot of the rogue traders, the ones who had been doing illicit and poor, dirty trade that was not getting well officiated, if you want to say that word, um, a lot of that has gone away. So now there are better regulations. There are better oversight. There is better oversight. But, you know, customs officials are not plastic experts. They don't exactly know what is a good batch and a bad batch. And unfortunately, the Basel Amendment on hazardous waste, the amendment was for plastic. That kicked into effect in 2021. Basel Amendment is not meant to stop trade, but it's meant to stop the trade of bad waste hazardous or plastic and of course we want that to happen but the general feeling around the world with environmentalists and many countries is that what it meant is no trade of plastic so now you have countries very quickly being defensive when someone from the press says oh you just shipped in some more plastic from another country uh it's out of context potentially uh, and that that government then says oh i don't want to be caught on the bad end of a stick again i'm just going to shut my doors and i'm just going to ban plastic overall yes and th- this this was the brinkmanship from the thai prime minister who was quoted on a post in facebook saying we no longer want to be the waste bin of the world now this is brinkmanship of course and there is an election coming up soon but the question is that kind of goes against free market economics and the broader recycling ecosystem Well, that's correct. So when you look at the circular economy, um, we strongly believe that it is almost impossible to have a circular economy without it being global for plastic. Global means trade. So the, the unfortunately, the feeling today, even, even with the UN plastic treaty being negotiated over the next two years, is one of... Um, negativity it's of reduce uh, tax ban use less um, find alternatives that's fine for certain pieces of the pie and the segment to reduce some of the stupid plastic that of course we shouldn't have on bananas and pineapples and coconuts and you know plastic forks but what it shouldn't be doing is closing all borders and forcing every single country to then have its own recycling facilities and its own manufacturing to absorb what they've recycled because that simply will cost much too much and it will take forever to actually do so just like we trade copper or wood pulp Um, any other commodities to go into finished products, so too is plastic uh, for a commodity for recycled content. And when you do that, uh, you allow some countries, obviously, to use their competitive advantage. Those who are middle tier, middle development, middle labor cost, but good technology, good manufacturing, they can really win at this game. Thailand is one of those countries. 
They could be both importing, producing, exporting, and collecting more domestically. But if you pull out your recycling base from the big guys who can't get the feedstock because you close the border, then the recycling knowledge of that country is depleted. I absolutely agree because you mentioned innovation in your recent essay posted on LinkedIn. So can you give an example of this for large recycling facilities? Sure. So there's two types of innovation there, um, one of which is societal. Uh, which really requires no technology or anything that uh, requires us to think differently and focus differently on plastic and how we get it out of everyone's hands into a, a channel so that it can be used for a second life. The other innovation is the technology and the Sometimes, amazingly, that's not big and it's not uh, complicated. It's off the shelf and it's just a matter of how you deploy it and get it into the communities that can use it. So if you start with the scrambled egg or the omelet example, even a place like here in Hong Kong, Hong Kong does not have a material recovery facility, a MRF, for a big city like this. That's quite amazing. Uh, what that means is when they do clean this streets and the house housing estates and Hong Kong's a pretty clean place but it gets shipped very quickly to the landfill and no one has their chance to get their hands on it and unscramble that omelet clean things sort things and make economies of scale for the different types of plastic to recycle it so an entrepreneur will not come in to the game and invest in a machine and equipment if they if they don't think they can get their their fingers on the goods so societally, we very much pitch the sorting of waste simply by wet and dry. Uh, that's very easy for any population and any community to understand. Today, there are multicolored bins all over the world. Uh, governments and municipalities have spent decades trying to tell us to put things in the green bin, the yellow bin, and the red bin. When I go to San Francisco, it says recycling the recycling bin in the public, I have no idea what they want to recycle. And I'm kind of in this space. I don't know if they're trying to get paper, they're trying to get glass, or they're trying mm. to get plastic bottles, they're trying to get gum wrappers. And so that doesn't help at all. And, the, and the ambiguity of... Ambiguity uh, simply makes things contaminated more. And as soon as someone sees a contaminated bag, again, because of the labor costs, they will not try to sort it and clean it. So we need uh, municipalities to really focus on plastic and plastic only. If you get plastic out of the waste stream and you keep organics out of that, then it's easy to hand sort things and make value from it in a much, much bigger way, even if you don't have equipment. You've mentioned these choke points that potentially entrepreneurs and investors could use to disrupt the current market in terms of perhaps um, mediation between disposal and, uh, you know, eventually where it ends up as a, as a kind of caveat to filter this. Where do you see the value proposition to disrupt this from an investor and from an entrepreneurial perspective? Well, from an investor, that's, uh, this is one of the challenges um, in this space, is the amount of money and where you place it. Like I mentioned before, you don't need giant machinery that's worth 20 to $50 million going into a tiny little town. And because of distances and transport, 
is because waste is distributed, you don't want to be driving that 500 kilometers to go get into that machine. So what the world really needs is hundreds of thousands of small machines. Grinders, shredders, compressors, compactors, things that can get local, smaller communities into the value chain, into the supply chain. Now, the bad part of that is that those machines, it's a good thing, but they're also not so expensive. And when they're not so expensive, no one wants to invest in it. It's not sexy. Can't really put a good loan on it. The Asian Development Bank, World Bank won't be putting money in because it's too small of a deal. But at the same time, the poorer people who are the entrepreneurs but might easily be able to make a job and a business out of this and hire 20 people, maybe they don't have $50,000. And maybe they don't have 100000 to be able to do the, or even 10000 to have a good shredder and a grinder. So this is where there's a very big gap in uh, capacity needs and money needs. We have to also remember that when we talk about exporting waste, I just want to go back to this. A lot of people say that a country exported waste to another country. We have to remember that the huge brands of the world export to 190 countries with their products. And some of those products might be recyclable in California and France and the UK, South Africa, but they might not be recyclable in the other 180 countries because they don't have the capacity, they don't have the collection system, they don't have the sorting, they don't have a machine to get them into the supply chain. So when those big brands also now want 30%, 20% recycled content in their products, they can't get their hands on it because the supply chain of the mm, collection mm, is mm, not mm. there. And so if Thailand shuts its doors to the larger scale manufacturing, all of those pellets which would have gone into the recycled content percentages for the brands aren't gonna be there now. Now you've got even less material. So we think there's a at least a six million ton shortfall in recycled content in the next couple years annually, just based on the commitments of the big brands and what they would use if they could get it. But if we create everyone, uh, you know, a, a non-global circular economy, it's going to be hard to move the feedstock into the proper processors and then into the factories, which are used by the. OEM manufacturing or the brands to make their goods. Because essentially, as he said, this is a commodity, isn't it? It's no different from timber or iron ore. You know, this, this is a global ecosystem of supply and demand. That's correct. So right today, obviously, um, we deal in virgin polymers, and there's over 370 million tons made every year for everything from about one-third of that is uh, packaging and disposable single-use items. We want to decrease that. The other is durable goods like refrigerators and computers and medical equipment, and we all need that. But six million ton, if that's the shortfall of recycled content and we're making 370 million, that's still not very much. So imagine uh, that inventory of stuff we make every year probably not getting burned, not going away, probably getting lost at some point in some cases outside of a landfill into the stream and river and this is where we really have the big challenge. I'd like to move on to material tech within polymers and polymer composite manufacturing. 
the leading companies in Thailand are investing heavily in research and development in this area as they have to respond to customer demand. And by this, I mean B2B. But it's very, very early days for them. What advice would you give them? Uh, do as much R&D as you can on using recycled content in your products. Um, this is what consumers hopefully will be demanding more of. Um, you know, the chicken and egg story always comes up. Oh, it's too expensive to have a new product, a new material. Oh, I don't know how to blend the recycled content in with the virgin material. But it's chicken and egg. If you don't take those steps and learn that, then you won't get economies of scale and the prices won't come down. But people are looking more and more for products that are sustainable. And when you use recycled content, uh, you save 70 to 90% energy use on that recycled content portion. So there's a carbon angle there, of course. And there's a huge pollution abatement angle, of course, because if you're using recycled content, you're getting it out of the waste stream somewhere, which means it's not going to be burned, it's not going to be dumped, it's not going to go into a landfill or the water. And we really need that circulation, that uh, demand to happen. So someone had said to, uh, to me one time, and it really resonated, the recycler is actually the buyer of the product and the user, not the middlemen who are collecting it, cleaning it, processing it and selling it. It's the end buyer. If we don't have end buyers, so governments who have tenders out for stadium chairs, 50,000 stadium chairs that are plastic, why would those be 100% plastic virgin material today? They should be 50% or 20 or 80, depending on the performance. But that's where the R&D needs to go, is how to do... Uh, you know, mix polymers from with recycled content. And does that include biopolymers? These are obtained from renewable resources that currently represent a sustainable alternative to petroleum-derived polymers. Uh, they do, and they can, and R and D should be there. So, um, you know, there's there's two types of biodegradable, or I would say, you can say bioplastics. One is meant to be biodegraded, and the other is actually meant to be recycled. Some people don't realize that. So the durable, recyclable bio product supposedly can get into the waste stream, the recycling stream, with other recycled content of virgin uh, polymers from the petroleum side. However, there's a lot of misinformation out there and not everyone trusts each other. And so a lot of the recyclers who are doing petroleum products don't want the biomaterial in their batches because they're not sure what the performance will be. They certainly don't want biodegradable products in the batch when it meant to be a durable batch. And this is where the world has a big challenge that's not been met on labeling and information. The consumer doesn't know what is biodegradable and or biomaterial but meant to be recycled. The recyclers don't know what that is. The brands may or may not. But at the same time, the environmentalists are doing a bit of a disservice in, in our view in uh, claiming that biodegradable is no better than anything else. And um, 
if it gets in the landfill or doesn't have oxygen and heat and moisture, it doesn't degrade any better than normal plastic. If it's made from a bioplastic source, which is sustainable, more sustainable than petroleum anyway, might be a waste feedstock from plants or fiber, algae. Um, of course, you don't want to really grow corn and have big fields of corn or sugar cane just to make PLA. But, you know, there's many new technologies that can do this. But even if those products don't degrade for two years or three, it's often much better than 400 years from the petroleum product. So we have to always think that when we innovate, uh, we're trying to make, we're taking steps and steps. And if we don't make those initial innovations, we'll never get to the next step which says, wow, I just saved 5%, but I just figured out how I can save 15%. And I think that muddles the water in the bio space. So it's, it, it's coming, but it's uh, still moving slower than a lot of people would like to see, I think. And I think that includes the manufacturers as well, because ultimately this has to be, this comes down to being cost efficient. And we're hearing a lot about kind of green composites but again, that's quite an ambiguous term. Could you perhaps define what you think green composite is? Well, I think um, it could have many meanings. It could be the uh, one could be where it's produced from, if it's coming from a sustainable source like a waste material, a wood fiber, a vegetable fiber, and algae. It could be how it's um, reused or degraded potentially. But again, on all of these things, it, the cost, like computer chips, is really about economies of scale. So if some companies who have big orders don't make big orders on these things, the price doesn't come down for everyone else and the competition won't jump in and start making them in other factories. So someone's got to take the leap of faith and the jump and maybe pay a little bit more. But once you get, unless you want to regulate, if you regulate, it will be much quicker because everyone has a level, level playing field and everyone would be forced to use this alternative thing, which hopefully is better than the original, maybe in this case, non-biomaterial. Um, but there are carbon savings. There are um, carbon didn't used to be a discussion in the plastic world until a couple of years ago. But when you look at the uh, carbon pie of uh, total CO2 used, plastic production is 7% of the total global chunk of that pie. Um, and some estimate it will be 15% within 30, 20 years. And that's probably quite possible with a growing population. Uh, plastic is lightweight, very durable, and many companies want to use lightweight and durable products to save on their carbon from transportation and packaging for other things. So we are getting ourselves to the most efficient place we can be by using this material, but now we have to be more efficient in how to reuse it and find a second life and a third life. And that's not what we've focused on well in the last 40 years, 50 years of this product. Lastly, Doug, we are in an era of uncertainty. The overhang of COVID, supply chain disruption, rising costs and potentially recession. So 
What is the biggest choke point, from your perspective, on impacting plastic pollution? Well, I think the biggest choke point is goes back to societal change in a way. It's um, it's not necessarily the big machinery and equipment. We certainly should not be hindering trade because that will force us to rely on municipalities and governments who may not have enough money to bring in proper machinery equipment. This is all about sorting and collection and the way we handle the waste that we all produce, even from your own house. So in Cambodia, now we're starting a new project in Indonesia and the Philippines, we have a project called Harvest Plastic. And we've created uh, branded rice bags. Rice is harvested. And so we're using that word as a play on words, Harvest Plastic. But that's from your house. So every single type of plastic, not just the plastic bottles. Many people get all excited about collecting plastic bottles and being recyclers themselves as uh, for plastic bottles, but you've got to think of the myriad of other products in plastic that are not as easy to collect and recover as a plastic bottle is. And we don't even do that well, to be quite honest, globally. So um, when you put all your plastic dry, without food waste, the, the omelet is unscrambled, then someone in that village or that town even if it's by hand sorting, can start to have a small enterprise. They can be sorting this by color, by shape, by, most importantly, type. There's seven types of plastic in the family. If you get those types sorted, it will be much easier to sell as a batch. Uh, then you could put in a shredder, a grinder, and you can compress it. One of the pe things people never talk about is the air in products, in packaging. Get the air out. So if you think of uh, plastic bottles and um, household soap, detergent bottles, they're basically plastic wrapping air when the liquid is outside. When you throw that in the garbage bin, if it's uncompressed, it takes up a huge amount of space, but there's no value or volume to the weight, so no one wants to collect it. If you had a truck pick up a one ton of plastic bottles, it would hold 40,000 bottles that's one ton but if you compressed it or ground that you could fit nine tons on the same truck a ton of plastic bottles might be worth about 350 us dollars today uncleaned and unsorted so nine times 350 dollars is worth a lot more money for one truck mm -hmm. means less traffic on the road less pollution less wear and tear on the road less diesel there's so many things that could be brought in there if we just focus the right way uh, in societal change of focusing on plastic material. Doug, thank you so much for talking to us today. And that's it for this episode of Making and Doing. Thank you to Doug for his insights into how we can achieve a plastic pollution solution. For more information on Ocean Recovery Alliance, visit their website, Ocean Recov, that's O-C-E-A-N-R-E-C-O-V dot org. And you can contact Doug directly on LinkedIn. We'll be back at the same time next month. But until then, from me, Graham Newman, thanks for listening. <laughs>